I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you all for coming. I've just embarrassed Lindsay by telling her that I first read estates when I was at university and I was a huge fan of her, and then she emailed me out of the blue one day and said she really liked my writing, and I felt like somebody get a letter back from a pop star. So. <laughs> I always wanted to be a pop star, so well... It's not too late. It's not too late. Um, so tonight we're going to be talking about Lindsay's book, Estate, and, and obviously we you know just been reissued, but also we'll take in issues on you know class from Respectable, and I'm sure we will talk about Grenfell Tower and what social housing means in the UK at the moment. So I suppose first of all, Lindsay, obviously how long ago was it that Sates was published and why is it necessary for it to be republished now? Well, Sates was actually published 10 years ago, so um, that makes me feel old. Um, It was 2007 uh, when it came out. I'd, I'd spent pretty much the whole of the previous five years writing it so it it, it was obviously a a topic that that I felt completely obsessed about but I was always convinced that somebody else would get there first I thought somebody's got to write a book about council estates surely and then the more I wrote of it the more I realized that um, it it was a topic that that was kind of quite resolutely unsexy Uh, and so nobody was going to get in there first let's face it so so I sort of took my time with it and um when it came out in 2007, obviously Labour was still in power and it was a situation where lots and lots of new social housing was getting built, but under a sort of set of conditions that I was very, very unhappy about, you know, namely councils were only, uh, councils weren't building new houses rather, councils were only improving the existing council housing stock on condition of moving the council housing stock to various arm's length management organisations, uh, housing associations, other sort of more long-standing housing trusts like Guinness and Peabody that almost overnight turned from these really quite small local providers into these absolutely massive housing behemoths, mm. didn't they, who had access to tens and tens or hundreds of millions of pounds. So at the same time as we were making PFI hospitals, yeah. we were making PFI, PFI housing. houses, exactly. So PFI, basically PFI housing. Uh, and a lot of new build uh, social housing got built in that pit that was getting built in that period was I thought was a very poor architectural quality and has now turned out to often be a very poor actual building quality but I mean really the reason the reason I wrote it at the time was just I'd grown up on a council estate and I inextricably linked my experience of growing up on that estate, which is a very large peripheral estate on the outskirts of Birmingham, then moving to an inner city council estate in London and seeing a lot of similarities and differences and sort of inextricably sort of having it tied up in my mind with this weird experience of social mobility that I was going through. And it's kind of like, well, how how can class be so permanently and sort of spatially imprinted on the landscape that, that I can go from this place that felt like a very self-contained place and go to another place and be so completely freaked out and discombobulated by it that, that, that I should be obsessed with wanting to write about it. Can you tell us a bit about the estate you grew up in? Obviously, you go into it in the book, but obviously, you get to know about it here. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, well, um, so I'm from this place called Chelmsley Wood, which is uh, at kind of like the size of a new town. It's nine miles from the centre of Birmingham. Uh, it was built in the late 60s, finished in 1970. 
uh, and it's uh, it was it's eighteen thousand houses and flats, and it was built for sixty thousand people. Now about forty thousand people live there because obviously people have got older, families have shrunk, households have shrunk, but it still houses a lot of people. And and one of the things I always felt about Chelmsley Wood, not when I was growing up there, obviously, because you're growing up there and you don't you don't know any different. That's just the place where you are. But after leaving, it suddenly struck me that. It was a place that was the size of a town, but lacked the identity of one. It was just, it was just this place, you know. And nobody seemed to sort of had heard of it or knew where it was, except for people in Birmingham. And then when he told people in Birmingham, they'd be kind of like, "Oh my God, we're a den of iniquity." And it's like, "Where's the bad, bad?" You know, it's kind of it's a mix. It's a mixture of it's a mixture of good and bad, you know. And as it happens, when I was writing the book, because you brain does weird things when you when you're writing a book you you want to get out all the stuff that you're really angry about it tended towards the sort of angry and sort of negative side but of course 10 years on and 10 years older and now I'll take my children back there all the time and they enjoy you know they enjoy lots of aspects of it uh, I can see that it's a much more of a mixed picture I mean one part of the book I found really really, really interesting and quite resonant. I mean, I also grew up on a say it was in a city, unlike, you know, Chanting Wood, but was the kind of strange social parameters. So you talked about how you went to a sick form that was outside of your school and you didn't realise until months into school that you didn't have to get, you know, up at 6am and take three buses. There was a yeah. direct bus that you didn't know about yeah, because the it wasn't bus. for you. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know the college bus existed yeah it's that sort of thing about sort of unspoken knowledge mm. and secret knowledge and one of the things that that uh, really exercised me I remember when I was writing estates was this idea of the wall in the head which I'd heard about from from when the Berlin Wall came down uh, at the beginning you know at the end of the 80s beginning of the 1990s when Germany first unified West Germans often said the East Germans even though the wall had come down, they still had a wall in the head. You know, they kept on to the sort of psychological, the psychological parameters and the habits of East Germany, even though they lived, now lived in a unified Germany. But it's one of those things of that sort of sort of marginalisation. It was something that the, 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 the West put on the East kind of thing. You know, East Germans weren't going, oh, the West Germans have got a wall in the head. It was only East Germans who were meant to have a wall in the head. It was that sort of thing about, about feeling as though the place where I'd grown up was extremely self-contained, that it didn't have physical walls around it, but it may as well have done in terms of in terms of the limits that you set for yourself and the limits that seemed and what seemed possible and what didn't even occur to you was even there to experience. Mm. How do you think the attitudes towards social housing have changed? Firstly, from when you when you first remember growing up in Chelsea Wood. Uh, and in the last 10 years, so it's a two-part question. Two yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's changed? Yeah, in terms of attitudes towards social housing and social yeah. housing tenants. I guess uh, what I remember about 2007 when the book came out, again, I was, as I said, you know, Labour was still in power. They'd been in power for a long time at that point and they were already starting to feel quite tawdry for want of a better word, the government was starting to feel like it had, it had run its kind of run its natural course for, for, for obvious reasons. But uh, but but one thing I remember at the time was that it was just absolute frustration. It was frustration that we had a Labour government that was completely obsessed with proving that it could sort of outdo the Tories on its kind of punitive attitude towards people who sort of, you know, basically you weren't homeowners who didn't aspire, didn't aspire to, you know, Tony Blair saying, you know, if you're not, if we're not all middle class now, I want you to be all, I want you to be all middle class now. And it was just absolute, absolute frustration and anger that we had a government that, that we voted in with such excitement ten, 10 years previously. And yet the rhetoric had not changed at all. The rhetoric that got them into power, they clung on to quite tenaciously for fear of losing power. And so it was kind of like, you know, when are you actually going to, when are you actually going to sort of, um, not lighten up, but when are you going to release this pressure? When are you going to release this relentless rhetorical and often, you know, sort of active pressure on people who, uh, who had been struggling, whose lives have been effectively destroyed by the previous Tory government, you know, who were experiencing 
some good things, some good things about, about Labour being in power. For instance, you know, sure start centres, you know, and, and more money coming into schools and the NHS and a lot of physical improvements made to council estates. Because that was one of the things that I wrote about in estates was, was that the, the, the sort of the mixed, the mixed blessing, the mixed blessing of Labour's attitude towards uh, estates, um, you know, in the late 90s and the noughties. It was that sort of thing about, you know, Tony Blair went to the Aylesbury estate in South London, 1997, says, speech, yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. And he says, you know, was it was it him? And he said that there were two thousand worst estates in the country, yeah. and then David Cameron then repeated that same that same sort of statement 10, 10 12 years later. The two thousand worst estates in the country. We're going to turn them around, and at the time, it felt quite exciting because it felt like. Growing up uh, on an estate, you, you just felt like you were kind of surrounded by sort of physical decrepitude and just absolute, dis, you know, literal and active disinvestment. You know, we're going to build these places, but we're not going to help you maintain them. You know, the, you know, that you know, the, we're going to let them fall down basically. And then all of a sudden, the prospect of of, of the housing stock across the country basically being sort of replenished, but it was at the cost of, it was at the cost of this sort of relentless kind of we will do we we will do this but you have to you know you have to be well behaved in order to deserve it you know you have to sort of um uh if you know there was that constant sort of david blunkett hazel blears and unfortunately later gordon brown sort of thing of play you have to play by the rules you know as if as if there are rules that are set by anybody other than you know the already privileged i guess it all comes from a kind of i don't want to say demonization but a kind of Apologisation of working yeah. class life. Well, exactly, exactly, mm. and it, it did come to that really. Um, you know, because the, the, you know that that whole sort of pathologisation of, of um, what people can, but obviously don't always, and most often don't do, but what people might find themselves doing in extremely pressured circumstances uh, came to be regarded as a, as a sort of a, a subset, a subset of permanent habits you know exercised by this group of people that's a kind of rump and that that it was sort of imported from america wasn't it, it was charles murray's charles murray's kind of underclass uh, idea imported from america to britain the idea that there's a sort of a group of people who either incapable of doing things for themselves or or a, a kind of completely and utterly sort of stubbornly resistant to all the improving effort to all the improving efforts of, of the labor government and that uh, that sort of recognition and acknowledgement of people's just utter struggle to continue to live in you know in desperate circumstances mm. it just it just never happened that acknowledgement never happened so there's one thing I think that struck me in the past 10 years is the move away from seeing social housing as something that is uh, there to provide stability and opportunity and that sort of thing. Yeah. And instead, because so much of it has been sold off, because yeah. now the government have brought in legislation that means that the highest value social stock must be sold off as soon as it becomes vacant. Yeah. Um, and also the point system. For yeah. when, well, when you present to the council's homeless, when you ask for a council home, etc., means that I feel like we shifted from seeing social housing as something that can provide for people when the market can't, and instead being as a, a kind of like A and E for housing. Yeah, well, exactly, well, exactly. I mean, that's been a consistent theme, hasn't it? A consistent theme of residualisation, re- reducing reducing the total stock, and. When you reduce the total stock and you say this is just for people in need, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Because because if you say this is for people in the in the gravest need, mm. then you will then you will have people who have multiple things going on in their life are going to be incredibly, incredibly, often incredibly impoverished, have all sorts of other issues going on, and the idea of it providing stability. And then, but but also, just in the last couple of years, just just summarily taking away that stability by basically saying you can only have it for two years at yeah. a time, like an assured, like like pr- private sector yeah. renting. I mean, it, it it's almost like it's almost like it's just become homeless emergency accommodation, doesn't it? But I remember, I remember what for for this for this new edition of estates that I've just written, which came out I think about two weeks before the fire at Grenfell <coughs> happened, so is immediately kind of, you know, doesn't address the most 
sort of significant housing uh, uh, issue issue of recent years, recent decades even. But but I remember writing that 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 back in two thousand and seven when I first wrote estates, I had the luxury of writing about kind of the perception of council estates more in sort of like the cultural landscape, the socio-cultural mm-hmm. landscape. I have the luxury of writing about perception, whereas 10 years later, there isn't actually, it's too urgent. It's too urgent to be writing, although, of course, it's all, it's all inextricably linked and it's all importantly linked, but, but housing for, for vast swathes of society has become a hugely, hugely urgent issue. And it's been pressed and compressed and people living in difficult housing circumstances have been so pressed by, you know, by the last seven years by, by, um, by government since the coalition that the idea of just like sort of taking five, you know, taking five years to write a book about, oh, well, you know, we don't look, don't we, you know, we don't look very well upon council housing tenants, do we sort of thing? You know, it's almost become a bit of a, it almost seems kind of flippant given the situation that we face face with now. I suppose we should talk about the fire. Were you surprised when it happened? Well, yes yes and no, mm-hmm. I suppose, really, because I'm thinking about this earlier because uh, I've been making, which, which Dawn and contributes to, I'm making a, a series for Radio 4 about, uh, about the history of social and council housing in Britain. And uh, I was in the middle of making this series when the fire at Grenfell happened. And obviously it's completely transformed the focus and the content of most of the series. But I was, you know, I was asked to, to, to uh, but, but by the producer to kind of state where, where I was when I, when I heard about it. And I said, well, I was in bed. It was seven o'clock in the morning. I turned on the news and this is what I heard. And I just felt un- unutterable, cold dread and, and just instant hideous kind of me- mental images of, of, of what was actually happening. And yet at the same time thinking it was only a matter of time. It was only a matter of time, but at the same time, how could this even happen? How could this even have happened? I mean, I found out about it very, very quickly afterwards. I had two friends who lived nearby, both from text me and said they could see a very, very big fire from their window. So, obviously, the first thing I did was think, if there's a huge tower, there must be a resident association, if not for the tower, for the entire building. And I found this blog post from November that said, you know, we haven't been listened to, we've been campaigning for years, the only thing that will make people listen to us is if there is a tragedy, and that will probably be a fire, given everything that's going on. Yeah. And they, ha- and they included photos from a, you know, a tower block fire from nearby. And I tweeted it and tweeted a few other things and then obviously went to the fire. One thing that I found really striking was that a lot of people accepted that this could be true and that in Britain today lots of people aren't listened to, lots of people are ignored, lots of people are bullied by local authorities and you know, national politicians. But a huge number of people literally couldn't believe that it could happen. And I had a lot of people, you know, people say this must be a conspiracy theory, it's probably written after the fire. And I said, I found it. I found it 40 minutes after the fire happened. You know, there, was, there wasn't a resident who set fire to the tower and then wrote this article. This is unbelievable. Um, yeah. And it was just incredible getting to the scene, just seeing how many people there were calling their calling their loved ones who were inside the tower and couldn't get out. And you know, I spoke to a firefighter who was literally sat on the floor in tears. And I said, I said, what, I said, what can they do? What can they do? And he just turned to me and said, everybody over floor twelve is dead. And you know, you looked up and you saw people waving. And he said, those people aren't going to get out. And there's nothing we can do. And I've never seen anything like it. And then afterwards, you go through it day by day, and you realise that there were hundreds and hundreds of things that could have been done to stop this from happening. And at every step of the way, everybody was ignored, and it was cost-cutting, and it was political decisions. Yeah. And absolutely everything contributed to cause the absolute worst-case worst yeah. scenario, and that's yeah. why at least 80 people have died. Yeah. And it just felt like the end point of a kind of 30-year campaign against social housing, yeah. a 30-year demonization of people who live in social housing. Yeah. And one thing that really struck me is I had to go, obviously, reporting from the ground from like the second it happened up until, you know, 
now constantly going on TV and radio and people saying well obviously town box terrible places to live and you know social housing is terrible places to live and I was you know I, I pointed out well I grew up in a town block and mm. I live in a council estate now and I actually prefer it to when I lived in kind of shared housing in terrace streets because we had community we spoke to people it was cheap and stable and nobody could really understand why you would want to live in these places mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think that feeds into why yeah. these people ignored it's like yeah. you, you, you wouldn't want to live there it's terrible housing so why do these people even need a voice yeah well exactly exactly well I mean it, I mean it's, it's just a, a whole conflation of factors isn't it I mean you know that I suppose the most obvious thing really is is the you know what I was saying really the effective collusion of successive governments to say we will only sort of we will only and then grudgingly sort of give up the money and the time to think about investing in social housing or to sort of consent to find a way to invest in social housing if it's under this set of conditions you know basically under sort of PFI conditions, you know, transferring to a TMO, tra tenant management organisation, sort of conditions, and it's that thing about adding adding layers of distance, adding ev all the time, adding layers of dif distance I mean, even if you between look at the tenants. Supply chain for the refurbishment of Grenfell Tower, there were about you know at least twenty four companies I found so far yeah. that were involved in every single chain, and it's yeah. like if you just purchase it directly, it would have been much cheaper. But yeah. instead, you've outsourced everything, and everybody takes a cut, and the people. In the tower, end up with the cheapest, most dangerous possible outcome yeah. because it's just profit driven. Yeah. yeah, 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 no, exactly. As I said before, you know, I mean, without without heaping the sort of the majority of the you know the opprobrium on 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 the previous Labour government mm -hmm. as opposed to the the Tory government, you know, up to ninety seven and the and the Tory led government we've had since since uh, twenty ten. It's that it's that collusion and that refusal to reverse the narrative that had begun from the late seventies onwards, which was which was that the only sort of valuable, full, democratic citizen is the person who owns their own property. I mean, what what, what do you think will happen now that most people, you know, myself and most of my friends included, don't own their own homes? So you've got people like me. You know, I grew up in a council estate, but now I earn an okay amount of money. I'm a young professional. <laughs> I should be able to buy my home. I would yeah. have been if I'd been born 20 years earlier. Mm -hmm. What do you think will happen to the political landscape and also the kind of housing movement now that this yeah. isn't the case? I mean, yeah. and do you think it affects the general election? It had to have done. Mm -hmm. It had to have done. I mean, obviously, in combination with a lot of other a lot of other factors, you know, a, a recognition a recognition by anybody under forty that that um, you know relative relative to anybody over forty that they're they're you know relatively you know being stuffed over several times. But um, I think if you get to a situation where, because I think sort of towards the end of. You know, I think while Gordon Brown was Prime Minister, it got over above 70% owner-occupation. And if you have that situation where over 70% of the population owns their own homes, then you think, ha ha, hey, we've achieved the property-owning democracy. We don't have to worry about anybody else anymore. But if that, if that figure starts to slide and you have a situation where, obviously, as you say, professional, professional people who have a voice and are not, you know, and... and have a greater chance potentially of that voice being listened to and start to sort of exercise exercise that voice in terms of hang on a minute it's not necessarily that we want to own our it's not necessarily that we all want to own own houses just for the sake of owning houses but we need stable good quality places to live and have you noticed have you noticed the, the sort of just the absolutely egregious effects of this situation again where just in the last couple of years, for the first time since the 60s, private renters outnumber yeah. social housing renters as well. So you push huge numbers of people into the private renters, rented sector again, you know, with all the sort of, uh, you know, Rachmanite and quasi-Rachmanite implications that that, uh, that that involves, then of course that's going to have a political impact, but hopefully a positive one. I've got three friends my age who live in social housing, and every time you talk to them about it, they feel incredibly guilty. And this is completely unscientific, but I did a couple of Twitter polls. The first one said, if money were no object, would you rather rent or buy? And 80% of people said buy. And then I said, if 
supply and money where no object, would you rather buy privately rent or have a social mm-hmm. have a social home? And sixty five percent said they would have a social home. I stipulated if you wanted a social ha- social house and say why. And most people said they weren't sure if they wanted to stay in the city they were living in forever, yeah. but also they didn't really want the kind of responsibility that comes with owning your own home. So yeah. like if your roof falls in, they if your boiler yeah, breaks. Yeah, yeah exactly. the classic one if the boiler um, breaks. Most people yeah. wanted stability, but they didn't necessarily want to kind of own something they had to sell in order to move, etc. Yeah. So it just seemed like we, we've been sold this lie that everybody wants to own their own home, when actually the reality for everybody I know is that you know, they don't really want to own their own home. Mm. They, they all they want is stability and private rent. Yeah, offer that exactly. Um, exactly. I mean, I'm very very lucky in that I, I've had eight terrible landlords. Now I have a, a landlord who feels unbelievably guilty about the fact that he grew up in his council home. His mum went through right to buy. He inherited it, and now he lives with his partner. And he um, charges a very very low rent and loves Jeremy Corbyn and feels guilty about the fact we live there. <laughs> the guilty landlord. He, 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 but he also knows I write about housing for the Guardian. So. <laughs> So I feel very, very lucky. You got him also, over a barrel also, there. Also, also, also <laughs> I live on an incredible estate in Clapham, and it's like it's built in the 1930s. It's really, really beautiful. It's got these huge courtyards. But at the moment, it's just full of kids playing football and playing really insanely elaborate games that I'm trying to understand based on what I can hear from my window, but can't understand at all. <laughs> and ball games uh, not always ball games right okay so there are lots of arguments over who whose turn it is to get the ball out the hedge <laughs> and um you know I, i'll walk from my estate and someone goes that's a woman that that's a woman who owns a gray cat and i'm like oh, okay but for the first time in since i live in london i know all my neighbors yeah when, when i lived in private rented terrace housing instead of on a council estate I didn't know my neighbours, I'd nod at them when they left, but we'd never talk. Whereas yeah. now, me and my neighbours chat all the time. Yeah. We've got a residence association. Um, you know, every time something happens on the estate, everyone's talking about it. I know everybody who lives on my floor, I know about eight people who live in my block. And every time I see people when I leave the house, we say hello and just wave. And it actually feels like a proper community. And it's really, really interesting when you talk to people about the fact that you live on the council estate and they go, oh, God, really? How is that? And you try to explain that there is a sense of community because you don't have the kind of strange barriers that seem to erect themselves around kind of private ownership because mm. everybody identifies themselves with that small area yeah. which you don't I guess with kind of privately owned homes built back to back yeah but I think I think it to- I think that I think the point is is that it totally depends on the specific place you're in. You can have a great experience in private housing and a terrible experience in private housing. Yeah. And you can have a great experience in council housing and a terrible experience in council housing. The point is not to the point is not to make a specific sort of assumption that mm. your experience of private housing will be great, your experience of council housing will be terrible. And you know, I mean, I think the thing is looking back, sort of. If I were to rewrite, if I were to rewrite estates now, ten years older, with you know, ten years of kind of life experience, I suppose, I, I would I would write a more hopefully more nuanced picture of the experience of living on the estate I grew up. I think I think that was the thing. It was a book written when I was, I was, you know, it was published when I was 30, so I was writing it in my 20s, and I suppose it suffers somewhat from kind of like, I had to get out of this place, please, somebody listen to me, please, you know, kind of thing. And then 10 years later, it's kind of thinking, well, hang on a minute, you know, what, what was I really getting at there? I still stand, essentially, I still stand by the, the, the stuff in there that is about, again, about the social perception, you know, the perception of council estates and the people who live on them and the fact that class is sort of written and implanted on the landscape in in the form of socially and spatially and often racially segregated housing but you know that that there is you know a a more sort of a a more nuanced picture I think needs to be written and needs to emerge obviously now in this context of absolutely relentless attack on social housing and, and people who live on them rather than a more kind of rather than the more mixed messages that were going on I suppose at the time that I was writing it under the you know under the previous government you know, then, then, then that needs to come to the fore, and and that sort of and that sort of defence of the necessity of there being there being 
a mixture of forms of housing, not just one, not just one type, because people have different needs at different points in their life, don't yeah. they? It's like what you say, you're talking to your friends, you know, like they're, they're, they want the stability of social housing, but eventually they might, they might want to buy a place yeah. and they don't want it to be completely and utterly impossible for them but to e do. E or equally, they might, yeah. You know, I was in Grimsby recently interviewing the MP for Grimsby. That's my, you know, Melanie on. Yes. Yes. And yeah. um, she's a really interesting character. So she was, that, that, that actually sounded a bit sinister. She's really, really nice. Sorry. <laughs> um, so she, she, she grew up in council estates. She became homeless when she was 17, was put in kind of shared accommodation by a charity. And we were walking around Grimsby talking about the housing crisis because so often, you know, as somebody who writes incessantly about the housing crisis and lives in Brunza, um, I get loads and loads of people who don't really understand it say, well, surely it's just a London thing. And mm. you say, no, actually, housing is an issue everywhere. It's massive. You know, obviously in London, there's a big affordability issue. There's very, very increasing numbers of estates being kind of demolished and decanted. But house, you know, housing is an issue everywhere. And in Grimsby, the big problem was mass, masses of private rented homes that have been bought up, left empty, and then the neighbours were kind of subjected to antisocial behaviour or, you know, more often than that, you know, the houses weren't, weren't looked after, so A, their house is cold because the next house is empty, and then structurally it, it starts to fall damp. down. Yeah, yeah, it gets damp and pulls yeah. their house down. But there was a big issue as well with who landlords would rent to. So a lot of people in Grimsby are on benefits, their landlords wouldn't rent to them. There's a big problem with the bedroom tax there. I mean, where I grew up in South Wales, I grew up in council housing, and the council housing that was built in South Wales was for families. If if you know if you if you have three kids and they all move out and you're an adult now and you still stay in the same council house, the bedroom tax affects you because yeah. you have spare rooms. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. felt like the bedroom tax was was a kind of attack on the quality of life in social housing. Yeah, and I mean, in London, it may have vaguely made sense. I sort of agree with it in that you know you had some people who had spare rooms and other people who needed to downsize and upsize, but. Outside of London, you know, like in Liverpool, in South Wales, in the post-industrial north, etc., yeah. there were lots and lots and lots of social housing built for families. Yeah, you know, there weren't one and two bed flats because they weren't no, needed. No. So yeah. all these people are being taxed, but yeah. there's nowhere for them to move. So I go yeah, to yeah, the valleys, yeah, exactly. go to Newport. There's nowhere for these people to move. Yeah, and it's literally just a punitive tax on the fact that these people have spare rooms and have the audacity to be living in social yeah. housing. Yeah, well, exact. Well, I mean, that's the exact point. I mean, I mean what, what's the issue in Liverpool at the moment with housing? Well, I think it's, again, it's, it's a combination Sorry, of... Sorry, Lindsay lives in Liverpool. Sorry, I live in Liverpool, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a combination of factors, really. Um, a lot of it, uh, particularly North Liverpool, is, is the blight is the blight on the environment created by the path, Pathfinder schemes, which was another... I feel like can I'm just relentlessly about... going on about Labour. But, no, but, can, but the, can, can you yeah. explain the Pathfinder? Yeah, so... exactly. The Pathfinder initiative was... was oh, at the back looking very angry about Pathfinder. <laughs> <laughs> was areas of terraced housing deemed to be economically unviable, i.e. they weren't worth enough for the people who lived in them, you know, to sort of make a pretty penny out of them. You know, like there were houses that were worth, say, £15,000, and it didn't matter whether the people who lived in them wanted to live in them forever. No, they couldn't give a toss whether they were worth £15,000 or not. Are they financially viable 15, in the market? Are, exactly, are they viable in, in the market? And it was decided that they were unviable housing. It was sort of part of an acceptance of the managed decline argument, which is that places like Liverpool can only ever shrink because they will never, you know, will never be able to get jobs to Liverpool. So you might as well start knocking down the houses. But 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 what replaced a lot of the uh, what replaced a lot of the Pathfinder housing in places like Anfield in North Liverpool was was sort of again sort of PFI sort of PFI social housing. So it was lower density. It was it was a really weird mix actually. It was a really weird mix of sort of lower density, but sort of sticking a low rise block of flats and then just having a completely empty expanse of grass in front of it. It was just very, very poorly planned. It was all this sort of poor quality sort of design and build, you know, sort of so not not sort of designed by council, you know, by thoughtful council architects, but basically a company that was brought in to say, oh, you know, if we put a kind of wavy roof on this, it might look exciting. 
sort of thing. It was just it was just sort of poor quality from start to finish, and finish, and obviously sort of just decimated the areas mm. in which people in which people lived, all for the sake of saying to some owner occupiers in that area, "Oh, we've pushed the value of your house up from fifteen thousand pounds to thirty thousand mm. pounds because we knocked we we knocked down the other side of your road." I mean, it was and just, you go to Anfield, yeah. you go to Toxteth, and uh, you know, as I have recently, and you yeah. go through, and there are whole streets that are completely empty with yeah. only one or two people living in them, and they're terrified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Particularly in North Liverpool, you mm. get that situation. I mean, in in Toxteth and and Granby in South Liverpool, there's been a very, very sort of concerted campaign to bring a lot of that housing back into use. Housing that was tinned up for a, yeah. a long time prior to the Pathfinder project actually it was actually a lot to do with the to do with the riots in, in, in nineteen eighty one in Toxteth. A lot of the housing was, was tinned up and just, just sort of left there. But, but there have been campaigns yes, so, and, with with yeah. metal meshes. Uh, but but most of that housing has actually been brought back into use by a combination of a combination of community land trusts, housing co-ops, housing associations, some directly by the council, and a couple of streets where the council has said you can buy this for, for a pound. pound. You yeah. can buy it for a pound if you can raise the mortgage to do the renovations, and that's actually been really yeah. popular. So quite a few people bought these empty houses for a quid um, and had to prove that they had 30 grand through refurbishments. Yeah. And that was really, and it was mostly kind of young, was, y- young couples who wanted to start families and moved in, Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you positive about the future about housing? <laughs> Depends. You know, when I've had a couple of glasses of wine, I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of more like a how long till socialism? You know, it's kind of, I give it six months. You know, it's kind of, it depends, doesn't it? I give it four months. <laughs> it, it depends on, I mean, um, I'm positive in the sense that the election went better than I thought it was going to go. But even then, you know, I mean, Labour's manifesto, I was really excited about Labour's manifesto, but I think for the purposes, obviously for the purposes of appealing to a large number of people, mm. it did still prioritise home ownership. It yeah. said, you know, the first paragraph, the first paragraph in the section on housing was, it wasn't increased, was it, was, it, was it extending the help to buy scheme or it was something to do with we will help you buy your coveted first home Labour's or something Labour's original like housing manifesto was we can buy their housing minister. Right, Okay. So it could have been more radical, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is about the thing is about it is is the stated aim to build a million houses in mm. a five year term. That's actually not that exciting. That's nothing new because because no. ever since Gordon Brown or even prior to Gordon Brown, you know, successive prime ministers have said we will build two hundred thousand homes a year or we will build a million homes homes in five years. Saying a million homes in five years, it's like wow, that's a that's a massive number. But I think really to to cover the sort of the shortfall. The, the shortfall, uh, the built-up shortfall, I guess. I think it would need to be... I mean, to, to give an example, in the late 60s, I think 1968, 480,000 homes were built in a single year. Now, obviously, we can go into a separate debate about, about you know, about the quality... Uh, of uh, about the quality and the sort of thought that had gone into the house, the, the four hundred eighty thousand houses that got built in that single year, nineteen sixty-eight. But the point is, is that two two hundred thousand homes a year isn't that isn't that drastic, yeah, really? Yeah. And also, I mean, what you're saying about the bedroom tax punishing specifically people in 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 social housing with a spare with a nominally spare bedroom. Uh, Danny Dorling, the, the geographer, states that we do actually technically have enough housing yeah. in the country to house everybody. But the problem is it's the economy that, is so stilted towards the southeast. Everyone wants to live there. Exactly, it's that. It's an imbalance. It's an imbalance. There's jobs, not enough houses in the south. Houses, not enough jobs in the north. But also the fact that you know a, a sort of a technical excess of bedrooms is actually concentrated in the private mm. sector because you know you do get these ginormous particularly in the southeast ginormous <laughs> four and five bedroom detached homes with only two people living in them and they're not subject to the bedroom tax what what they? we could do to rebalance the economy is build high speed two but not electrify all the rail in the north and south, <laughs> and south wales have you considered that, that? was such a top idea <laughs> <laughs> oh, i just love this government um, and uh, yeah. there's also scrap free breakfast for children, which is great. Um, I mean, I yeah. I think I definitely do feel more positive about the future of housing. I think 
that the anger has reached a level that I haven't seen before. Whereas before I was writing about housing and calling for more social housing, calling for better rights to tenants, calling for a change in housing. And it felt like shouting into the wind. The people who were directly affected understood, but the people who didn't, you know. Whereas now I feel like after Grenfell Tower, unfortunately, everybody understands what a tenant management organisation is. And, mm-hmm. you know, how council hasn't been outsourced. Everybody understands that exactly how much outsourcing has contributed to you know danger in this sector yeah. and also people are aware of like out of borough placement so the big issue which is that often when people come to the council and say i'm homeless and they get moved to you know to birmingham to liverpool i mean recently birmingham said that they had so many families sent to them from london that they now had to send families from birmingham out to liverpool and um, stoke yeah yeah, yeah stoke yeah. and then so, liverpool, and yeah, like, yeah, at, exactly, at yeah. what point does it end like mm-hmm. you basically decide that people are undesirable they need to be housed they can be housed yeah. you know far away from their family Keep because pushing no them one on. cares yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. and the sudden i think i think i think unfortunately grenfell shone a light on housing that a lot of us have been talking about before but i think the wider public outrage will hopefully turn into something that can change politics, do you think? I bloody hope so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's kind of, you know, as, as I was saying before, kind of the last 10 years have seen this kind of shift from, I suppose, shift in, a sort of demographic shift in the, in the, the number and the sort of the kinds of people who are affected by housing insecurity and affected by housing need. And that's not a good way to look at it in the sense that everybody, it's always been my absolute belief that, that everybody needs and deserves good housing as the absolute basis for a stable life. It's the basis for, you know, the government goes on about social, you know, the necessity or desirability of social mobility. Can't have social mobility without stable housing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an it's the basic pillar of public health. It's the most, you know, basically the most important pillar of pillar of public health. You know, everybody needs and deserves good housing and it's the absolute basic thing that should be fulfilled by a rich society you know by a rich country by a rich society there is no reason on god's earth why it cannot be fulfilled other than lack of political will so the more people that come to understand this possibly through direct experience but also possibly by reading the reports from grenfell understanding what happened understanding specifically why it happened to the to the specific people it happened to in that place at that time, in that borough, in, in that in that era under that government, and hopefully it will it will wake people up to the fact to, to, to the fact that this has been brewing and this has been coming on uh, and was made possible essentially. You know, while while we were looking the other way, I guess while we were looking the other way, while we were going ooh property only democracy, you know. I think it's a perfect point to end on. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, thanks for that. I don't, I don't know if you're aware of the, the website Municipal Dreams. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's really interesting because the guy who does it and the people who contribute are, are very sympathetic to a lot of the things you've been talking about. A lot of the narratives about the, the estates that they write about sort of have a, a, a common trajectory. Mm. That they start with everybody saying, "This is really terrific." You know, we moved into this and it was fantastic. And then they have interviews from the local press about thirty years later, mm. and it really doesn't seem to matter when it started. Mm-hmm. That when people say, "Oh, it's not the same. It's full of terrible people. We don't like it anymore. Everything's falling to bit." And then, then you have the the impact of you know what happened in in the area you're talking about and in sort of Labour government and then on. But there seems to be this this entrenched narrative that things got bad. 
that it, things got bad even in the 60s. Yeah. And I wondered how you get out of the rut of that, because it seems to be so much the sort of perceived narrative that, that turns up on that site. Yeah, yeah. I, from, from, from commenters or from it's, it's in the posts from itself? Newspaper. It's usually from newspaper reports. Oh, right. I, I mean, I guess w one of the things is that one thing that's very, very clear in council housing is the use of managed decline. So mm -hmm. council estates are built and obviously if you own a home and you move into it and you do absolutely nothing to it, it falls to bits. Mm. And when you do the same to a council estate, something happens, but but instead of blaming the owner for not, you know, yeah. kind of doing the plastering, keeping up the plumbing, yeah. you instead blame the people who live in it. And I think that's one of the big problems. I mean, yeah. I grew up in multiple council estates. I live in a listed one now, so they have to be a little bit more careful. But um, that whenever I go around and say that the same thing happens people say they loved it when they moved in it was great and then it fell to pieces because nobody did anything to it mm. well I, I suppose the thing is I suppose people who read those kind of sites municipal dreams and those and people who post on them are sort of a, a self-selecting sample <laughs> I suppose in a way in that they're people who you know believed in the dream of the place when they went there and believed it to be a Shangri-La or their parents felt it to be a Shangri-La when they moved to that place. And it, it's a combination of that sort of, you know, there's that sort of quite commonly known about experience that people often had when they moved out from the city or moved out from the inner city, especially to peripheral estates and new build estates, that thing of new town blues, you know, when people felt isolated and, you know, they, they, they loved the mod cons and they loved the good quality housing, but they just couldn't get used to the new environment. And often, you know, they were placed, you know, as where I grew up was placed such a long way from the centre of town. You know, back in the day, people didn't have cars, you know, and even now, obviously, you know, in, in peripheral estates where, where a lot of people haven't got a lot of money and often are much older than the general profile don't have cars and so reliant on public transport in an age when councils are completely stuffed in terms of providing subsidy for, for local bus travel it's that kind of thing about isolate about isolate about loving the amenities about loving the, the amenities of the house itself but feeling isolated in the wider environment and the the wider environment not ha not having the amenities that are needed to form a, a sort of lasting and to sort of bring together a community of people who may have been brought from all sorts of parts of the city, you know, and that, that thing, you know, as, as Dawn was saying, you know, it's that thing about, you know, councils, they might build estates, but they might not maintain them. You know, I mean, what I, I, mean, what I remember from the 80s when I was a kid, you know, is just the, the, the sheer state of the verges. State of the Verges. When when the houses were first built, they didn't have prop, they didn't have fences. I think it was meant to be a kind of, you know, a sort of quite a communal ideal you know you wouldn't need fences because you'd all get on so fabulously well and so they just had these little sort of blocks of, sorry these little sort of wooden blocks sort of denoting each bit of garden but of course you know they all got kicked in or they rotted or a dog ate them or, or whatever you know and they just never got you know they never got replaced and it's that sort of you know, I hesitate to use that sort of, bro you know, sort of broken window theory but once one thing happens and if a maintenance if a, a sort of standard you know, I mean, it's like it's like with tower blocks. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of you know, right from the outset. I mean, you know, like I had I had uh, cousins who lived on the top floor of one of the tower blocks in Chelmsley Wood, and they almost immediately they moved in. They went back on the waiting list to try and get a house because they didn't enjoy living in it because they had two small children. They couldn't get down, couldn't get down to the garden. And every time, uh, every time there was a gust of wind, their carpet lifted up into the air and basically rolled up, and they had to roll it back down again when the <laughs> when the wind when the wind died down again. So they didn't enjoy it. But some people do. Some people do enjoy it. it. You know, it depends on the context, depends on the on the situation. You know, in terms of that arc, that sort of narrative arc. Of, oh, it was good once, and now it's terrible. It's a British. It's a British. It, it's kind of the British disease projected onto housing isn't it really you know something was good once and now it's not so good you know uh, this is my perception I believe it to be generally true you know <laughs> so how how does the state of social housing and perception in Britain compare with other countries in Europe well I think you know in, in my sort of limited quite, quite limited research and experience certainly in Western and Northern Europe 
a lot of the same uh, a lot of the same issues are at play in terms of in terms of spatial segregation. You know the kind of the architectural specificity, particularly of sort of fifties and sixties, seventies kind of council housing, social housing, sort of making estates look so drastically different from private. You know, obviously, you know, in in, in most of Europe, more people rent more people rent than buy, but basically, you know, sort of council social housing looking very different to council housing and the issues of building them on the building estates on the edges of cities where there are poor transport links you know obviously in Paris uh, and in other parts of France this is a very very this is a very sort of um, present issue is the uh, is the sheer amount of time it takes into it takes to get into Paris if you live on a peripheral estate you know there are there are there are sort of similar there are similar issues uh, at play, uh, but depending on the country, you know, with with slightly sort of with slightly sort of different, and, and depending on government policy at various times, you know, with with slightly different effects. But but my, you know, my my, my knowledge is, is fairly limited uh, in that respect. I mean, uh, what I know um, what I know from from living in Berlin for a period of time is that social housing in Berlin went through a sort of a kind of forced PFI process in the same way that that, that council housing in Britain did in the sense that it was directly provided by the by the Bezirka, by by the by the sort of the, the neighborhood boroughs and then got transferred and th and then uh, estates got transferred to uh, I, th I think basically sort of German versions of TMOs tenant management organizations and housing associations with a with a lot of, of, of similar effects of adding layers of layers of distance between tenants and between tenants and management and so on and also being a condition you know that sort of transfer been a condition of the improvement of the estate so i've been reading about abavan again uh, partly prompted by dawn um and it's made me think about the ongoing class issues here and about a kind of um the idea of some people treating other people as if we know best or ignoring the concerns or um just not caring about yeah. what's happening yeah. um, and dressing that up perhaps as, as thinking that they know the best. Um, so with that in mind, how optimistic are you about the inquiry and the inquest at Grenfell and about the retired judge and what is there anything in particular you'll be looking out for as those processes um, happen, as, those, as the inquiry happens, the inquest happens? Um, Can I interrupt yeah. very, very yeah, briefly yeah, yeah. because I mean we're on stage talking about housing and um, the Metropolitan Police have just announced that they are going to charge Kensington Ken and Chelsea Council with corporate manslaughter. Sorry, my, my phone's been going ballistic, so I wondered what was going on. So um, the Metropolitan Police have said that there are grounds to charge the Council with corporate manslaughter over Blimey. the Grenfell Tower fire. That's fu <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the Abba Van thing. I mean, I. I spoke to a friend about it earlier about how I thought this was the closest analogy to the Grenfell Tower fire. And when I was reading a book, Abervan earlier in the week, um, for those who don't know, Abervan was um, a slag heap collapse that basically engulfed a school and killed, was it over 100 people? Over 100 children. And um, when I was reading about it earlier in the week, I've obviously been talking to a lot of survivors from Grenfell Tower who are very, very traumatised. And I was reading about how the children who survived Abervan felt about the experience years on. And one of the, one of the men said that he, he was asked by a reporter why he, you know, if, if he'd ever wanted children, why he didn't have them. And he said that he felt that his actual DNA had been corrupted, that he'd been through so much that he barely felt human anymore and he felt that if he had children all he would do was uh, perpetuate the kind of absolute trauma that he had gone through and how much it had changed him so I guess with the inquiry as well like speaking to survivors none of them really feel that an inquiry that just looks at the cladding will help 
they want an inquiry that will look at everything that contributed to the fire. So they, they want an inquiry that looks at the attitude towards housing. They want an inquiry that looks towards um, why they were treated so badly, why there is so much inequality in so many boroughs. And at the moment, it looks like that isn't going to happen at all. No, but no. What do you think? Well, I think it, it's it's got to be placed in it's got to be placed in context, you know. I mean, it's got to be placed in 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 a class context, in a class context, and in a race context, you know. I mean, it has to. I mean, to me, you know, you brought up Abba Fan, but also there's there's hills that you know there's yeah. also the Hillsborough disaster, and you know, and the Bradford fire, which is you know the the Bradford football fire from the. In the eighties, but that series of terrible, terrible disasters in the eighties. Can 80s. you imagine this happening at One Hyde Park? No, 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 no. Well, exactly. Also, but it's empty. No, no, but I mean, but but to me, what you know, when I when I think about when I think about Grenfell and the political implications of it, and I see the person who's been appointed to the inquiry, I think you're just not a suitable. You're not the right person. I mean, you may. You know, you may be independent, you may be independent, but you're not going to have any kind of under... Every you're not going to have any kind of understanding yeah. of no. what people have been through and, and the lives they were living before that happened. I, was, I went to meet him last night as, you know, about the inquiry and Justice Mor- Morbit turned up and everybody he brought with him was, was white mm. and that was brought up immediately by survivors. It's like, how can you not understand the racial aspect of what happened to us yeah. you have a lot of white men with you older white men you know we have no idea how much you're being paid for this but all of our time spent coming to these meetings is completely free and over and over again the survivors pointed out that they didn't think that the panel that were facing them could possibly no. understand fully no, exactly what had happened and all the implications not just in terms of class but race and yeah. not and also migration status yeah 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 yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think, I think, I think a different, a different government would be, you know, and hopefully a more thoughtful government would would actively be aware of the necessity of picking somebody. Well, not picking somebody, but actually allowing the survivors, actually allowing the survivors to, or or, or not, not actually allowing, but recognizing the the necessity of involving the survivors in appointing in appointing. Somebody said the inquiry. I mean, I was in the council meeting last week and it was very, very clear to me that um, one of the Labour councillors lives directly next door to the Grenfell Tower. She lost a lot of friends in there. She, at the moment, her children can't sleep because they, there, there have been fires around the area since and her children can't sleep and she can't sleep and she knows that all of her friends have died and, you know, and the Labour and the Lib Dem councils are calling on the Conservatives and Kensington Chelsea Council to resign and calling the commissioners. Yeah. And it's incredible that commissioners are called in for Tower Hamlets. Commissioners were called in, in was it Sunderland Council? Whoever, whoever's run by a guy in a monkey suit. Um, Hartlepool. Hartlepool, yeah. yes. But not for Kensington and Chelsea. And it's incredible at this point. And obviously the Labour councils have pointed out over and over again. We asked you know, that they were staring at a very very rich very very white you know panel of conservative councillors uh, all of whom had property investments in the area mm-hmm. most of whom owned multiple homes yeah and the new deputy leader is you know a property developer he owns multiple homes you know and the head of housing Rockfield and Mellon was as well and absolutely nobody in either the Labour or the Lib Dem side of the council or any of the survivors have any trust in these people. No. But there's still seemingly nothing they can do to get rid of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we had a question from a woman over here. My question is, whatever happened to the housing manager? The housing manager was a profession of women who were connected tissue between social housing and tenants. They were immensely important in the interwar period, they survived the post-war period. I wrote about Islington having neighbourhood housing centres in which housing managers and others, the technical teams and so on, operated for given estates. What happened to all that? So the question was what happened to housing managers who came in during the interwar period and survived and now seem to disappear? It's funny, you know, as soon as you said that, I sort of immediately thought of a sort of Octavia Hill 
kind of social reformer, oh, right, right, sort of improver type of person. And I can see the absolute, I mean, I mean, one, one of the things that's one of my absolute bugbears is, 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 in, is in Chelmsley Wood, where I'm from, the tower blocks that are most successful are the ones that have caretakers, that have living caretakers. And that's really, really obvious because as soon as something goes wrong, you just call up, you just, you, you, you get to become really good friends with your caretaker. You call him up and he'll say, oh, I'll come and, I'll come and fix that thing. Um, but on-site caretakers were only assigned to, what happened in the 80s was that a certain number of the tower blocks were demolished and replaced with low-rise housing. But the ones, a lot of the ones that were demolished were designated over 55s, over 55s housing only. Uh, you know, presumably because they, you know, they seen the you know couples whose children had grown up. You know, they just wanted a one-bedroom flat. You know, there'd be less, you know, there'd be less chance of antisocial behaviour and, and and so on. But the blocks that didn't, that the blocks that weren't assigned to be over fifty-fives didn't have caretakers. And of course, you know, they kept on having the same problems of you know things going wrong, people not wanting to live there, high transients because because things kept breaking down in the flats, basically, namely lifts. But the over-55 blocks were, were much, much more successful, so on-site caretakers are a fantastic idea. But, but in terms of housing managers, I suppose my sort of knee-jerk reaction is to think of sort of the, the, the perception of people like health visitors and social workers, often on council estates, as sort of basically being not so much feared, but resented, really, resented as being sort of middle-class people who go around telling everybody what's good for them and telling them what to do basically you know rightly or wrongly I don't know what do you think so given even labour the labour government's shortcomings in terms of housing policy what would your dream for the for for the future of social housing be you go first is that too big a question (laughs) no not at all I I think it's an excellent question to end on well I mean it's just for, for, for it to be valued, for, for, social, for the place of social housing to be valued as a, an essential component of the, of the national housing stock and for it not to be consistently sort of devalued and regarded as this sort of, we'll put it over there kind of aspect compared with all the other parts of the housing stock, you know, the, the sort of the nominally profitable uh, elements of the housing stock for it to be regarded as an essential component but also the people who live in social housing to be regarded as an essential component of society I mean it's just it's just kind of like you know what what does it have what does it have to take you know I mean it's like somebody was saying to me earlier like I said I was I was doing this recording for for, for, the, for this series about about social housing and the, the person I was talking to was saying to me, surely Grenfell will make a difference. Surely this will be the point where people say, you know, we've got, you know, we've got to, we've got to start, we've got to start treating these people better and all this kind of stuff. And I was kind of like, no, they're not these people. They are people. But everybody's, everybody is people, uh, you know, everybody is people. That's, that's a Trumpian sentence. I, I, think, I, think, I think I'm going to quote you on that. Sorry, I've drummed you. <laughs> Uh, no, everybody, everybody is a, a you know a, a, a you know a person in a situation, a group of people in a situation. They are they are li- you know that they, they are living in a place that they love. They are living in a place where they have lasting relationships with other people, or they need to form lasting relationships with other people in order to survive. You know they need to. They need to be near their moms, so they're looking at you know, so that they can look after their children. You know, they need to be in a place where they don't have to get three buses to, to, to get to work. You know, they need to be they need to be in a place where they can walk walk to a place, uh, you know, or catch a bus for you know one or two stops so they can get fresh food. You know, all these absolutely basic things that other people, you know, who own private property who can drive around in some kind of sub SUV all the time, you know. To, to, to buy, you know, just, just, just to do the normal things of life that, 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 that people who can buy their way out of these situations, you know, can just completely take for granted. And yeah, the, the sheer difficulty, the difficulties that are put in people's way to do basic things, you know, like living, living a life in, in a house that isn't, that isn't 
damp, you know, where their children have some room to, to play and do some homework and where they can go and buy food that isn't rotted. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, it's just kind of absolute basic stuff. I think for me, I've always been completely baffled as to why we built the National Health Service but we didn't build the National Housing Service. Exactly. Yeah. I think if you want to go private, you can go private, you can own your own home, you can rent privately. But I think that housing is, you know, housing, I don't think housing is a human right. Housing literally is a human right. It's enshrined in the Human Rights Act, um, which is why I found it so funny when uh, people went ballistic when Jeremy Corbyn said, let's requisition houses. And they were like, you don't care about property rights. So, well, you don't care about people living on the streets homeless or people yeah. living burnt yeah. out of their homes. But that's already happened. And it's already no, happened and society didn't completely, fall apart completely. when it happened. Exactly. And I, I, I feel at this point that we need to accept that the market has failed and the market is failed people. And if you build good social housing, then the first thing that happens is that the rent goes back into the local council and the local council reinvests it. So it's fantastic economically, but also people have stability. People can build up their own lives. People can actually stop worrying about whether or not they can feed their kids. They can stop worrying about whether or not they're going to be evicted. And you get a fairer society and you get a better society and you get a better local council because you've got so much more funding for it. And instead of getting, you know, so 2% of Britain are landlords. And at the moment they are getting a huge, huge, huge government subsidy in housing benefit. But also, you know, our wages. And if we had a huge amount of social housing, then the money would be reinvested over and over again and we could have fantastic public services and people wouldn't be in constant fear of eviction. They wouldn't be in constant fear of them and their kids being homeless. And I think we need to really, really look about the fact that market, the market has failed. Housing is a human right and we shouldn't leave it to the market. Well, I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's a completely brilliant point because the thing is, 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 it, is in America, you know, if you meet, you know, if you, if you talk to somebody in America and, and, you know, the subject of the NHS or, you know, like health, you know, healthcare comes up in, in America and people, uh, you know, this is making a terrible generalisation, but, 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 often, but often the subject will be, you know, if you have socialised medicine, does that mean you can't, you know, you can't be asked to get out of bed in the morning because you don't have to work anymore? And it's kind of like, it's sort of we're at, we're at the stage in Britain where private property is reified to a similar degree that, that for some reason private health care in America is reified. And we with the NHS in Britain, we look at America and think, oh, they're crackers, aren't they? Why can't they just have, why can't they just have an NHS like us? But it's obvious that with housing, housing is an absolutely essential building block of a stable life, it needs to be treated in the same way as the NHS. We need an NHS for housing. That's a beautiful point to end on. Just want to say thank you so much and please join me um, thanking uh, Dawn and Lindsay for being our guests tonight. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.